Hello and welcome to Potshot. I'm Alex Towles and I'm joined for the first time by both Seb Hund and Alex Collings. Hello, Seb Hund. Hello. Hello, Alex Collings. Hello. Yes, we've brought Seb back. We we had him had him with me, had him with Collings. Now he's here with both of us to discuss the game that's completely ruined our season. I'm 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 kidding. I'm joking. We're fine. We're fine. <laughs> Arsenal against Liverpool. Um, a two all draw in the end, thanks to that dagger at the end of the game from Firmino. He's been a thorn in our side consistently over his time at Liverpool, and I think we should probably be glad he's going. But we're not here to talk about Roberto Firmino. We're here to talk about the match as a whole. It's safe to say the game didn't go exactly to plan. It seemed like we were in control and going well for 30, 30 to 40 minutes. Obviously, going 2-0 up does help with that. But then we ceded control of the game to Liverpool for the entirety of the second half. And it wasn't great. So that, I think, is the main thing I want to focus on today, is that we we know Arteta loves being in control of games, strives to have control of games throughout. So the big question for this one is why did we only control the game for half an hour? Was it something that we did or was it something that Liverpool did? What do you think of our control or lack of throughout the game? Mm, It's interesting. So we came into the game pretty much how I thought the game was going to go that Liverpool are what they've been all season, which is kind of mistake-riddled, doing things that they haven't actually done. They've changed their sort of general shape more often in this season than they've had over the last two or three years when things were going smoothly, uh, which might have actually contributed to them not starting the game off very well. It's been discussed quite a lot of how we lost control at the end of that half. Like the the Xhaka incident has often been referred to as the moment the crowd came in and all that, which I don't actually buy. I actually thought the the Xhaka thing was a good thing for the team, seeing as Trent was coming up against uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold more times than not. And having him booked through just a bit of shithousing was actually a smart thing to do. But, you know, with player reputation, that that narrative can spin depending on how the result goes. I actually think the, the main contributor to our lack of control was a sort of semi-psychological, semi-tactical thing where after we conceded, we started to think, all right, we've got to, we're not going to go as hard in our pressing anymore. We're going to sit back more and and ease up on our pressure. And I think that really cost us. And it's a disposition that we haven't really taken this season. And it's unusual, which which threw me off personally. Yeah, I 100% agree. Firstly, on the instigating point for that lack of control, like the the Xhaka incident or the first goal, I 100% think it was Liverpool scoring the first goal. I've seen a stat going around quite often um, about Liverpool's shot numbers before and after Xhaka's yellow card. Liverpool had four shots, none of which were on target, before Xhaka's yellow card in the 41st minute, and 16 shots with six on target after that. Which sounds pretty bad and makes it sound like that Jacob moment was the instigating factor for us losing control. But you've got to remember that the Liverpool's Liverpool's goal came one minute after that. Jacka's yellow card was in the forty-first minute. Liverpool's first goal was in the forty-second. So you can frame it in exactly the same way, but around the first goal, you can say they had four shots, none were on target before the first goal, and then after the first goal, assuming you don't count it in and of itself, they had 14 go- fourteen shots and five on target. Arteta himself has sort of dispelled it, saying, like, between the time the, the yellow card actually happened and the goal from Liverpool, we had a chance to make it 3-0, and at that point, this would be a non-story. Nobody would be talking about Shaka's thing as an incident of 
riling the crowd up because at three now they would have been dead. It's also just really weird, right? Because I think one of the big things that's been praised about this side, and I do really buy into the, the like you know the psych psychological aspects and the more social aspects, but a huge thing is about how much more aggressive and willing to stand up we are, and I think more so than anywhere else, Liverpool has been the place where we've seen this team crumble, um, psychologically in the past. So it's weird that people are now criticizing Xhaka getting you know not backing down, getting kind of in Trent's face, whereas I think if he didn't do that and we lost the game, it would be it'd be a different story about like same old Arsenal kind of crumbling when they come to a ground of real pressure. So it really does feel, yeah, it's just very like results-based analysis in terms of what happened they scored right after. I think there are more relevant reasons that we fell off. Um, I do think that one of the aspects is, I kind of disagree with you, Seb, I think, what we have been doing throughout the season is we start strong, but then we do drop off and we kind of, we go in waves when we try press generally very much from the beginning of each half. So I wasn't too surprised to seeing us drop off. I do think it is something that we have been doing and it's kind of in two minds. Cause I'm not sure like whether we can really critique that because there is some aspect of conserving your energy and not trying to burn yourself out throughout the half. But at the same time, it is what did allow them back into the game a bit. And I think we did switch off. I do agree with that aspect that, especially psychologically, we just seemed a little bit more offered. We weren't as organized in our block. I wonder how much of that actually has to do with the the central organization, especially with the, the back line. Because one of the things that I noticed at the end of the first half and then definitely in the second half was how well Liverpool managed to consolidate possession in our third, really pushing our back line back further and further. And that was probably for me, more so than anything else. I mean, obviously us dropping off from that high press, it's something I do think we do. So that made sense, obviously contributes, but then more so than that, even when we drop off, we're still very good at maintaining a line where we don't let our sides through, don't let opposition through. And we just didn't manage to do that this game. I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts on like why we were so bad at that. I don't know if I have thoughts on why we were so bad at that, but yeah, I, I do agree with you. I, I think we, we've talked a lot this season about that pressure cooker that we've applied on other teams where we've had periods of sustained pressure in their half, in their third, and Liverpool had that on us through quite a few periods at the end of the first half at the start of the second half and at the end of the second half especially we had we did better in that like middle 20 minutes or so of the second half it became more even again but at the end of the first half start of the second half end of the second half Liverpool was just on us and did not let us out whatsoever and I suppose like for me it makes me lean back towards what Seb said and what you disagreed with Alex where we like we we were kind of not happy to let them do it but happy to let them do it we didn't think let's go out and keep getting more goals it was almost as if we went right shit shit let's not concede more goals shit shit yeah and that's yeah. a bad product of a few things right like i agree that we rev our pressure down during parts of the game but the, the thing that made this different is that we never revved it up again we were just happy yes, to sit in the block for the entire rest of the game and hope we can clinch it. The other thing is that there's a few things personnel-wise where we couldn't really get out, mainly due to our defensive midfielder be having this tendency of going extremely vertical at every opportunity, leading to so many moments where we go too quickly and don't consolidate possession in our third before we go. And... At that point, Liverpool kills you and you, you're not going out there. You're not coming through. This is why I love having Seb on the pod because more than anyone else I've met, he's the same person who has those issues <laughs> with Partey's decision-making <laughs> in possession has always pissed me off. And I think that was another thing. I think what he was very good at is once he received beating that initial pressure, but then we didn't see that ability to kind of slow things down, allow the team to regroup. Yeah. He was always looking to play those forward balls, but not even necessarily like his, you know, risk analysis doesn't really, it's always taking that like 
riskier paths, but not even necessarily being particularly smart about it. The one other personnel issue that I wanted to speak about, right, is how much I think potentially holding had an issue in us being able to or being actually unable to hold the team high up and kind of prevent Liverpool from getting into our third and consolidating possession there. Just from the initial moments of transition, normally with Saliba, he has that ability to read play pretty well if he's going to push up and then also recover. With holding, it was immediately at times, I think I felt dropping off a little bit more. Um, and that just allowed Liverpool to kind of settle in that sort of space entering the entering our third, where then we were kind of pinned back a bit. Maybe there was some sort of tactical element that we wanted to hit them on the break. Obviously, 2-1 up makes sense. Um, and with how Liverpool defend themselves. But but that was one sort of position that I was I was looking at as potentially why why basically our block was a little bit easier to kind of push backwards. I actually thought holding was pretty good, but I I didn't see it that much the the, the dropping back thing. I think he was doing his job very well in the first thirty minutes before we got pushed Perhaps. back. And I th- I think it's more of a team function, right? Like even the the Thomas Party thing. We're in double-edged sword discussing this even because, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing that we should have put Jorginho into consolidated possession because we needed Thomas Party in a sense, partly also because of our disposition change, because we needed his physical presence in front of our back line. But there's a few things here that are interesting, yeah. What did you like about Rob Holding's performance? Because I've seen a lot of praise for it. I don't think it was bad but i don't think it was good i think he was good better aerially in situations i think he handled those well but at the same time i think when we were pushed back yeah he struggles when you know it gets too tight to people gets opens up different spaces for the attackers to move into which means that they can hold possession rather than us holding a line and kind of forcing less space for the opposition being able to work with forcing mistakes from those attackers I don't think holding really forces those issues with his positioning, with his judgment when to commit, especially when it you know it's it's in closer proximity to to his opponents in, in their phases of settled possession. Liverpool's disposition suits him somewhat because with them just swinging crosses in more than other teams when they put you in those pressure situations, his aerial ability and ability to really get things out of the box really helped us to clear up most things for like i mean in our defensive phase i think we did quite well for about 35 minutes or 30 minutes in the second half i actually think they didn't have that much the sort of remembering game saving saves were in the chaos game state basically like the second half like gabriel and holding were pun intended holding down the forward quite well for a large <laughs> part of the game but you're playing a numbers game at that point right like yeah we, we did well but one ball has to fall the wrong way and we're losing everything we've built up until that point see i think i agree with that right and i but i think the fact that we had a holding there in the phases allowing liverpool to kind of get into that danger zone I think the fact that it was him there rather than someone like Saliba. Saliba's obviously a better defender. So we're, we're talking about it at that point already, right? I'm not asking Holding to be, you know, the perfect replacement. But I think he allowed those positions to happen. And he allowed, um, just by us having him in, in that side of the defense, that's where they were consolidating a lot of their possession or managing to hold on to it before trying to work it, right? I think it was before that final sort of challenge of when they would try to make the pass to get the shot or do the dribble to get the shot or take the shot itself. I think it was the fact that we had him there allowed them almost in their transition moments before slowing down, perhaps as we dropped off, allowed them to get kind of in good conditions from which to play that final ball. I I think I can agree with that. I mean, the the entire conversations about holding are somewhat moot because that was one of the only unchangeable factors in the game, right? Like, we couldn't have done anything else there. I, I want to return to Partey, actually, and how 
in your guys' opinion, his directness was directly leading us to us not having as much control of the game in the second half. I'm just curious, do you guys think that's solely down to Partey's traits as a player? Or do you think Arteta sent the team out in the second half with an uh, with the directive of being more defend and counter, being more direct in that sense and just trying to hit Liverpool on the break? I, th- I think it's him. Like The things that I criticise him for are the things I've seen repeatedly, especially against big teams that press us in situations like his verticality has led to a lot of problems against uh, United in the home game. It was his turnover after one of those vertical passes that were completely unnecessary that led to the shot of Rashford, which led to the first goal. Like these things happen more often, especially in big six games where we are more pressed than in other games. And especially last year when we didn't have, um, as good a like a, a retreat defense, I would call rather than even a rest defense, just centre backs that can defend on the retreats. We often had issues with Partey trying to force a ball forward and then us not being ready for it. So I think those issues are now getting covered up a little bit better now because of our defense. But he still makes them every game. I think Arteta is willing to, you know, accept that as a as a something that is just core to what Partey is as a player, right? Um, in terms of what he does in possession, because of how good he is out of possession, I would never have wanted Jorginho to start this game at all. Um, so it is, again, I guess almost like similar to the Rob Holding, except Rob Holding, there was no other choice. But here, just what Partey did out of possession is so much more important than maybe the lack of what he can do in possession. But I don't think Arteta likes it. I think maybe he does see the value that it could potentially allow for certain things. But Arteta is not also about building attacks that just go super directly. He likes quick attacks, but ones where there's still that control, where decisions, riskier decisions can be made closer to goal than basically where Partey receives and or wins the ball back and tries to play. On the other side of the coin, I think Saka and Martinelli had some pretty good games against Liverpool. I think their technical ability on in transition in the final third to wriggle past two or three guys and make something of a very low percentage chance made some of these direct balls that could have just been lost causes straight away into much bigger chances than they may otherwise have been and it was just it was just something that i found myself thinking when watching the last 20 minutes like other than oh god oh god oh god oh god my other main thought was we've got some really good players players who are really <laughs> good at football uh and that that made me happy even while i was stressed and what i think explains their quality very well is that they're, the parts of the game where they were excelling were kind of flipped of how we think of them, right? Like Martinelli had an excellent first 30 when we were controlling the game more, when he was able to go 1v1 and create there. Saka not as much because the right side was relatively disengaged because Odegaard was relatively disengaged from a large part of the game. While in the second half, when the game became more transitional, Saka's ability to roll a few and wriggle a th- few, th- through a few defenders in transition really got us where we normally think of Martinelli as the more transition-based player and Saka as the more dominant one. Like having both of these guys being able to excel in all those game states at 21 respectively is just mind-boggling if you really think about it. I think they both had fantastic games as well. I agree with Seb on like Saka... Having a quieter game really just came down to usage of the ball more than anything else. He didn't see as much of the ball as he usually does. When he was on the ball, I still thought he was dominating pretty much a plus every time he got on. I think maybe he struggled a little bit deeper earlier in the game um, when he was winning the ball back, was losing it quickly or something. But every time he was in their half, um, yeah, he was a positive. Martinelli had an exceptional game. I know people are speaking about that last sort of pass right at the end there where I do think he could have made there were two better options to make but also this is somebody he'd been running his legs off for 90 minutes 
had been making great decisions throughout the game. I think a lot of his decision making in the first 30 minutes is actually was actually huge in terms of us getting the ball, him knowing, understanding of timing. Now, I know pause is a word that's like thrown around, but there is that understanding of like timing of when to commit to your actions that I think Martinelli's, we've seen him grow and grow and grow since the end of last season to this point where him and Saka both have this. They know that sort of ability to pause, slow down play, and then suddenly accelerate it and make the right decision off there. Martinelli still does fall, um, you know, he is guilty sometimes of being a bit too blinkered in what he wants to do. And I think maybe that yeah. was the, the what happened right at the end there, where he either could have probably better, you know, carry the ball forward or even slide through Trossard out wide rather than trying to execute a pass into Saka. Well, if you're going to play the pass to Saka, you could have played it with the left, swinging in that's to Saka on his dominant foot, right? Like, but we're that's criticizing well, a player actually. that's ran his socks off for ninety minutes there at Anfield. And yeah, and it's normal. It's normal when you've made so many good decisions to make one off one, or the execution being slightly off. So I think it's a weird criticism of him at the end of the game. I think it's it's natural because it's a bit emotionally based. But yeah, I thought they both had exceptional games. They were they were huge pluses alongside Gabby J. Um, the bigger issue was mainly in the second half, particularly connecting to them through the midfield. And yeah, I agree. I agree with Seb as well. Um, I'm a big fan of Odegaard. I think he gets underrated in the big games generally. Um, but I think he had probably one of his poorer games. What did he end with? Thirty passes. Oh really? That's okay. I didn't even, I didn't even look up the numbers. But yeah, so Erdegaard is the last player on my checklist of players in the starting eleven who I want to touch on their performance because it's been made a lot of online that he was somewhat anonymous in this game. We've mentioned it earlier, um, but at the same time, he did have a couple really nice touches, really nice through balls. There was flashes of the normal Erdegaard. So I want to. I want to gauge your guys' opinions on the performance. I imagine Seb's 30 completed passes stat suggests you're not that impressed. 24, actually. 24 <laughs> passes on 40 touches. I I actually thought he was regular Urgaard in the part where we were controlling, considering we were playing more down the left side. right? Like He had his normal very good passes and all that. What disappointed me was him not really being coming towards the ball in the second half when we were under pressure and trying to be that pressure valve and make himself available. That's where he disappointed me somewhat there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I still want to watch the game back to judge his defensive performance. And whenever I do watch the games back, Odegaard always impresses me off the ball. I think he was really good in the high press early on. I remember that. I'd like to look back for the later stuff. But in possession, especially in that second half, I don't normally like the sort of accusation that he hides from games because I don't think that's true at all. But he was really missing in action in the second half, and I'm not particularly sure why. Sometimes he was staying high when it felt pretty clear, at least from where we can watch, right? Of course, the perspective that we have, that he should be dropping into support to help build, especially... When it was so clear after, you know, five, ten minutes spell that we were really struggling to actually build out and into their half. Um, he was still not coming deep, still not really offering the way in which he has in the past when we've struggled to offer new solutions. And ultimately that hurt us a lot in terms of connecting to soccer at all in the second half as well. Um yeah, I agree in the first half that I don't really have complaints in the first 30 minutes because we were trying to work down the left. But, but yeah, I don't think he stood out that much, even in the touches that he did have. There was that one really good ball, but I mean, you'd expect that at the end of the day, he's still a, a player of difference-making quality. But overall, what he is partly in the side for is all of those small touches, those small movements, the off-ball stuff. I feel like in possession, yeah, it was just a disappointing performance from him. Which, yeah, does... There is a small, like trend maybe i wouldn't want to call it a trend yet but in some of the bigger games away where i feel like he he can disappear a little bit at times um which is frustrating because i don't think it i don't think he hides at all um not consciously at least like i think he's a very brave football in that aspect in that respect 
but yeah, it's it's a bit frustrating. So, so what do you what do you put it down to then? Do you think he's making bad decisions in high pressure moments? Do you think he? Well, you've said you don't think he's hiding. Like, if it's not that, what's he doing? So, previous beforehand, right? I think I used to think of in big games or for teams specifically planning to deal with Odegaard, one of the ways in which you could deal with him is kind of having someone sit on and bully him off the ball, be very energetic. It kind of puts him off his his rhythm and then he struggles to get into the game. So not only is he having like some sort of attack dog sicked on him throughout the game, but then also he doesn't really get a good feel for it. But I think he kind of pushed past that this season. And then I don't think that was really happening to him this game. So I don't have a good like reason for why he was less influential this game. I think maybe he was trying to stay a little bit higher because he could see opportunities to, if he did get the ball then, to play to play through quickly into our, our forward line. Perhaps that was what he was doing. He was kind of weighing up the pros and cons of where he'd position himself. But I do think maybe he made the right wrong decision then because we were struggling to get it to him or basically out of our half in, in the first place. I don't know if Seb has any ideas on why why we why he struggled this game. Not really actually, no. I I I think it's really more they they didn't really put anyone on him per se. They were just pressurizing yeah. the ball at every given opportunity. It it was really more about really being and this is really just a soft factor thing of being brave enough to really make yourself available of coming towards the ball and trying to sort of offset the structure by creating something for yourself, if you see what I mean there. So you, you do think it was like a bravery thing or like a taking the game by the scruff of its neck rather than like something he was consciously deciding not to do? It, it, it's not necessarily consciously deciding not to do it. It's, it's more not consciously deciding to do it. I, I'd more frame it that okay. way. Like the game was cr- screaming out for someone to actually put their foot on the ball. Zinchenko was trying it somewhat, but he had an off day as well, so, sort of. But we, we really needed that on the other side as well. But And, and Odegaard was just really sticking to where he was supposed to be, sort of. Yeah, I think I agree with that. That make, I, w- I would take that. I think also players can have off days. Yeah. I, I, um, I also think the did. big game thing is bit selective especially this season like he had a great game against Tottenham in both games I think I remember him being yeah. really good at Old Trafford as well he was good at Old Trafford yes I said to be fair I said I think he's broken through that this season that I think it was more of a factor last season um but yeah I think he has broken through that's why it's a bit disappointing especially since he still has that reputation among the fan base or the ones that still kind of doubt him that he does go hiding it was disappointing that it felt like this Liverpool game he did go hiding yeah. a little bit or for yeah. whatever reason, whether consciously or not. Yeah. Like, regardless of his reputation, he just had an off day. But he yeah. has as many he's him performances as he has off days, so I'd, I'd excuse <laughs> him for that, sort of. Yes, as long as you know it, as long as he scores us a hat-trick at the Etihad, then, then it's all forgiven. <laughs> Moving on, uh, the the game, especially the second half, can kind of be punctuated really well by when the substitutes were made. The first 15 minutes where Liverpool were all over us, they had the penalty which they missed, and they really had us camped out in our box, came to an end when they made a double substitution on the hour mark, bringing off Curtis Jones and Diogo Jota for Thiago and Darwin Nunez. Then they had a 20-minute period where they did not have a shot, which has which is the second stat that I've seen floated around quite a few times alongside the one around the Jacques yellow card. And then, 20 minutes later, on the 80th minute, we made a double substitution. Our first two substitutions of the game, Gabi Jesus came off for Trossard, and Martin Erdegaard came off for Jakob Kivior, putting us into a three-at-the-back formation, and if we weren't aiming to lock the game down and just hit them on the break before, we definitely were from the 80th minute onwards. Like, we were trying to just lock the game down. And 
I think it's fair to say those substitutions marked the start of the next Liverpool onslaught as we fully accepted that we were going to be trying to see the game out. Alex, I know you've had some issue with these substitutions around this time. What did you make of Arteta's decision to go to five at the back? I think it was also just the personnel I felt was weird. I, I didn't like the substitutions at the time. I was fine with Odegaard going off. Um, I felt Kivio coming on f- was weird. Um, at least for for who he came on for and basically where players were slotting in was my issue. Um, one of my issues also with, with Arteta, and we've spoken about this, we spoke about this after the City game, is as I think he's a brilliant tactician. I think he's very good at preparing in between games. I don't like his in-game management at all. And I also think as much as Pep has these sort of like galaxy braining criticisms and stuff, I think a lot of it points to why he makes these decisions in-game. Sometimes he does these crazy things. It's a it's recognizing what we need and well what they need, sorry, City. And then like, yeah, basically how to fix those problems. And I think I think Arteta, maybe this is just a trust in him as a tactician, knows, would see these things, but he doesn't act on them. Odegaard coming off had no problem with... I was wondering why maybe not put Sinchenko on and then maybe bring Tierney on on the left side, right? Those would have... I understand why he wanted to keep Sinchenko, because as, as Seb was speaking earlier, pretty much the only player willing to put his foot on the ball being brave, Right. Those sort of tendencies that Zinchenko has to take the game by the scruff of the neck, we weren't seeing from Odegaard in an important position of the pitch. Zinchenko knows how to play midfield. Zinchenko's a very intelligent footballer in terms of knowing what he needs to do in certain roles. I know we've never seen him in midfield, but it felt like you're, what you've got from the guy on the, at left back now, or coming through you know, from the left side, right? Because obviously he comes quite narrow at times. You could really put in Odegaard's position and suddenly we're linking up a much more there. Zinchenko's dropping deep. There's still that sort of that 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 dynamic there right that we wanted from Odegaard we didn't get from Odegaard and then but replacing Zinchenko there by moving him to where Odegaard comes Odegaard's position taking Odegaard off putting Tierney there strong defensive player that would help us to yeah def- defend that side Zinchenko was starting to struggle already before he ultimately got done um by Trent for that uh clipped ball across ending in the yeah. you know goal right um, and then the structure, the structure stays the same. Kivio, I'm still very excited to see what he can bring, but it felt like a weird substitution for the context of the player as well. Just bringing him on, putting him in kind of a weird like setup, and then just being like, hold on to this lead. It's the sort of, it's the sort of substitution he does because he didn't have holding to bring off the bench, right? And yeah, just beca- it became like worse, I think, when when these substitutions were made. So so yeah, I was I was quite quite frustrated because it feels like this is one of the big play areas where Arteta still lags behind guys like Pep, the the true elite managers in terms of seeing the problem, which I think Arteta can do, but then having the bravery and the knowledge of how to fix it in the game. This was Kivio's second Premier League appearance ever. It just feels like too high pressure a scenario to bring on a guy for his second Premier League appearance ever. I and I think we saw that when he went on clad a guy like two seconds into coming onto the pitch. I think bringing on that extra defender is supposed to be a solidifying move that helps calm the team down and settle us in to dig in and see out a game. I felt like we got more nervy when Kivior came on, and that's the opposite effect that I think was intended. Yeah, I mean, I, I have two main issues with the, the double substitute there. Like, one is structurally, I think our structure as a whole was working quite well. Like, we were still forcing Salah in 1v1 duels with Gabriel and so on and so on. And we, like, you don't need to change into a five-man defense when we are constantly playing with a five-man defense in settled possession, uh, in settled defense anyway. Like, him bringing on Kivio as a fifth defender 
one threw off our structure which was working relatively well especially at that period especially considering Liverpool had just emptied out their midfield by bringing on Firmino meaning we could have actually gone ahead and tried to sort of put more pressure on that area by not not even putting Zinchenko where Udegor was but just putting him as a secondary pivot for the entire time and not having him invert you can still have Tierney coming in and putting Zinchenko as a secondary pivot, right? And the other main issue I have is that you can put in Kivio, fine, but don't put him in at central centre-back in a position where he doesn't feel comfortable. You're putting a guy making his second appearance in the most pressurised spot on the field while having Holding and Gabriel there who could both sort of fulfil that role a bit better, I think. Like, on a very basic level, you're putting the smallest guy in your back three in the middle of it in a game where you're trying to defend your box. That's quite counterintuitive in my eyes. Yeah, I understand why he did it in the context of Rob Holding being right-footed, so moves a little bit onto that side of Kivio, and then Gabriel being probably better. I mean, I've not watched enough of Kivio, but Gabriel was doing quite a good job at locking down attacks coming from that side. So wanting to keep him there. But I agree otherwise with regards to the structure. It was just weird. And more so than even, we don't know. Arteta will have much more insight into obviously yeah. everything than we do, right? But definitely Pep's into keep Kibio's Pep mentality. Keeps going on about this. He has more info than Twitter has. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so maybe Kibio was perfectly fine from a like a comfort of jumping into to playing on Anfield and stuff. But I I struggle to buy that. Basically, he was put in a structure he's probably not trained much in. He didn't look... The whole defense looked a little bit confused about where people should be yeah. at times. And I think that is because we compromised on the structure when, as Seb said, the structure was really good beforehand. We just maybe needed to make a couple tweaks in terms of moving the personnel around. I agree. Basically, I meant Zinchenko coming into midfield. However that happened, whether it was kind of coming in exactly where Odegaard was or moving Partey alongside and then putting him in a pivot behind, I guess, Xhaka, right? However however it was done is less important than kind of keeping the same shape there, changing the personnel, and then and then going from there. Instead, Kivio kind of moved around in like a weird place. It, it didn't feel like... Towels, you're speaking about it being nervy. I think a lot of that also comes from the slight lack of, of like being sure on what your role is or what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to be on in those moments. And that mm. creates that slight nerviness, which is what you don't want at that point of the game, especially where Liverpool were now on the ascendancy, pushing for things more. And yeah, emptying out their midfield is <laughs> another tactical thing that we did not take advantage of. And ultimately, these are the things this structure and being sure everyone being sure of their roles or the roles that they need to fill is what has made us so strong this season and i think we basically compromised on that with those substitutions at the end there i i think that's a good point to leave it on in terms of discussion of the game itself uh let's move on to how this game affects the rest of the season and i think this is going to be something we're probably going to do every week from here on out is go <laughs> that game happened how does that affect our chances of winning the title um and we seb and i we did our predictions um back before back before the international break of what games we thought we were going to win draw and lose and am i right in saying you predicted we draw this one back then I predicted a loss, actually. I, I'm not sure what you predicted. Um, so I predicted a draw, and Seb predicted a loss. We predicted either this result or worse, and at the time we both thought that would be on the way to a title-winning run. So, Alex, can you explain to me why I feel so much worse right now? I actually think it's just because City look inevitable. Like at this point, yeah. <laughs> it's happened. It's happened where they've clicked in, they've locked in for the last. I I have a f- like that sinking feeling that they're not gonna lose. Not only are they not gonna lose a game for the rest of the season, but I'm terrified they're gonna win every single league game. And if they do win every single league game, including the one on the 26th of April versus us, then the title is theirs. Yeah. So that's why it feels bad. I feel like Pep has at the right time 
clicked into a formation that will work for the remainder of the games probably i think a lot of their players are coming into really good form um especially guys like Grealish are really starting to to click in maybe into the best form he's had over city career um is looking superb that sort of four center back thing they've got going at the back there is is working um Haaland is fortunately isn't injured enough so <laughs> so things are looking scary um and I think that's why it feels bad and also 538 which I don't even really respect as a predictor because it's so volatile but still nevertheless here I am citing it now has them as favorites I think it's like 52% them I think they're on 55 us. now they were on 46 yeah. or so before the Liverpool game which just shows how much that's yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, ultimately though, like at the same time, I would have predicted, I think the Liverpool game was one of our, you know, I'd say our, our, probably our two biggest tests alongside City coming. I was very worried about that game. I'm happy that we didn't really crumble despite the game, you know, I think the XG was quite quite in, in Liverpool's favour by the end there. I didn't feel like we crumbled in any way. I just think they did a lot better than us at points, if that makes sense. They didn't feel like that falling apart. So I'm happy to see that. I think we kind of passed the test in some sense. The fact that we left that game being upset that we lost despite even getting outplayed. Um, and the fact that the players were all really upset and frustrated to have not picked up three, I think is a good... I don't think it's going to harm our momentum or anything like that. But nevertheless, I do feel a lot worse about the title at this point. We basically do have to beat them or hold them to a draw um, at the Etihad. Yeah, do you think part of this... I'll I'll go to Seb here. Do you think part of this pessimism following that game is due to the way the game panned out? How we were winning 2-0 and got pegged back? Do you think in an alternate world where we scored an 87th minute equaliser against Liverpool. Do you think we'd be sitting here and saying everything's fine? Or do you think a draw here with how City are looking would be feeling pretty shit regardless? I absolutely think it's because we had the realistic expectation of getting a win at Anfield. Like, every expert before the game said a draw is fine. I think the sight of seeing us get battered for 45 minutes has influenced a lot of opinions. Like, I am not scared yet. I don't think Manchester City is stable enough to win every single league game. One, because their current form is predicated largely on a balance that relies heavily on a few players. Like You're not going to ask John Stones to play every game, league, Champions League and FA Cup for the rest of the season, considering now after yesterday, they're, they're realistically expected to be in the semifinals of the Champions League. So there's another two games to get onto that. And there's also a few games which pose a stylistic problem to them, right? Like Southampton has been done, but it was a tricky game for 45 minutes, right? Like they could have slipped up there realistically considering how the game was going. They still have to face leads who are less of a big game outlier now, but do still have those tendencies in them if they can if they can go through. They have to go away to Everton, away to Brentford and face Brighton away. Those three away games are quite difficult especially considering how those teams have historically done against City while also playing us. Um, My opinion could be different once we get past the City game. Like, even if we draw or, God forbid, win against City, I'm not not scared yet because those three fixtures afterwards that's where the problems could come and that's where we'll we'll decide everything, right? Like sit Chelsea at home after the City game, away at St. James's Park where we're we're all still scarred, right? Like we're all scarred from last season. To be honest to be honest, that I was listening to your guys' episode and I'm weirdly confident about 
about Newcastle away. I, I, I have a feeling it'll go well. Um, I would just want to put that on record. Maybe it'll come back to bite <laughs> me. But you guys were both speaking about how terrified. I'm much more scared of Brighton than I am of of Newcastle. Maybe maybe naively so. Um, but I feel like we I feel like we'll we'll come through that one. I think if we hold City to a draw, I'm feeling really good again. I think Brighton is less of a problem because they they've been superior in every game they've played since the World Cup, right? Like they're extremely good, but they have a profligacy to them and a vulnerability that has led to them being vulnerable in most games against the big six. They've not actually won many of them. They are consistently beating the teams below them. But St. James's Park with a team with the disposition that Newcastle has is a stylistic problem to us, I think. That's the bigger issue for me. Like They are a more stylistic problem to us while also having St. James's Park, which one brings up memories of last season, which are scarring, but also is just generally something that is almost as difficult as Anfield is nowadays because both are relatively similar in quality this season, I'd say. Yeah, Newcastle are one of the most annoying teams in the league, entirely by design. It works for them, and they're really good at it. And as you mentioned, if we're going to even slightly buy into the idea that part of the problem for us in this game was the Anfield atmosphere and feeling the heat, feeling the pressure there, which I do somewhat, like, not because of the Xhaka thing, I think it was the first goal, I think I, I think Liverpool scoring G'd up the crowd, G'd up the players, and was what facilitated them piling on the pressure in the second half, but if we're susceptible to that at Anfield, we're equally susceptible to a similar thing at St. James's Park. Perhaps not in the same way, like... Newcastle aren't going to camp in our half for 45 minutes the way Liverpool did. They're just not. But in the same way that Anfield sucks the ball in, perhaps St. James's Park keeps the ball out, if that makes sense. <laughs> They'll just energetically right. press us for 90 minutes, which causes problems. Like they've, they, they were different in the Emirates game, but they still have the capability of completely stifling build-up against most teams like we're not as bad in build-up as united is quite far from it we're actually quite good but united were destroyed at saint james's park yeah but i think i think there's a big difference between us and united that does render that to some extent like not a comparable um situation you know what i mean i think if we were if we were United, I'd be terrified of going to Newcastle for a lot of reasons. But I think because of what we're good at, I'm not. But you guys have managed to to put the fear of God into me. Maybe I'll <laughs> I'll be terrified of, of St. James's Park now. Uh, what, welcome to the, the Pessimism Podcast, the <laughs> Arsenal Podcast for Pessimists. See, I came in feeling really good. Now I'm going to go home and, well, I am home, but go to bed and cry. Um, <laughs> the, one, the one other thing is that when Saliba comes back, is impactful to me. When we've had our first choice 11, we've won every game we've played with them so far. And look, I like Rob Holding and, and I don't I think he's a fine player, but I do think we're we're worse, <laughs> a lot worse with him in the team, right? And especially in those games. So yeah, Newcastle, Brighton, Chelsea as well, and of course City. I think whether Sidlipa's available for those games will be huge. And I feel alongside City, I think, coming into form, like, properly for this end of the season. And maybe I'm buying into the fact that they do this every season. Doesn't mean they will this season. But, but yeah, that alongside us missing out, missing Saliba at the moment is probably what makes me pessimistic with regards to the title. Uh, on that note, I think it's time to wrap up. I was hoping we'd have time to do a West Ham preview, but we don't. Um, here's my West Ham preview. They're not very good. Anyone disagree? I saw their. I only saw the highlights, but I've seen the goals they've conceded versus Newcastle. My God. <laughs> My I haven't. God. I'm not even going to disagree. Go with that. 
Yeah. They're not very good. So there's your official pot shot West Ham preview. Let's not um, hope I for a have... Declan Rice audition. That's all. Oh god, no. Well not, a, not I don't want I would like he, he, he can audition, audition by kicking the ball into the West Ham goal. How about that? Yeah. La- his last his his last audition in the in the reverse fixture, he was pretty he struggled from pressure under Odegaard a lot on the turn. So I would like to see that kind of performance again. Rather than anything that I swear, if he if he scores a winning goal or something, I'll be furious if we try sign him in the summer. He needs to he needs to embrace the Arsenal the Arsenal team spirit right now. I would say, yeah, and not play amazingly. He's invited in Sunday. the winning team huddle after the game. <laughs> Speaking of embracing the Arsenal team spirit, my trivia book question for this week is: What is the motto of Arsenal FC? Is it, and oh my god, I apologise for the butchering of Latin I'm about to do. Is it A, nil satis nisi optimum, nothing but the best is good enough. B, mes que un club, more than a club. C, consecta, oh my god, consectatio excellentiae in pursuit of excellence. Or D, victoria concordia crescit. Victory through harmony. Seb, don't answer. I actually want to see if Towels knows this one because I know both of us know it. Towels, what, what's the answer? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> not a clue. It's not Mescaian Club. That's Barcelona. <laughs> well done. Well done. It's Victoria Concordia Crescent. Yep. But now Victoria knows- Concordia Crescent. <laughs> That is correct. Uh, as once again, I have been exposed for being a fake fan. We will call the podcast there. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Seb and Alex for being here. You can find them both on Twitter. The links are in the description. You can find the podcast on Twitter at PotshotPod. Go and give us a follow. Give us a like and a review on your podcast platform of choice because it makes me happy and boosts my fragile little ego. Our music is made by the wonderful JW Blake. You can find him on all good music platforms. We'll be back next week after a game against West Ham. See you there.